Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, nothing we say here is investment advice. You can read our show notes for our complete disclosures. We are finally back. It's been a year plus hiatus in which I presume absolutely nothing of substance happened in the crypto space. And so very excited to pick up exactly where we left off. And I couldn't think of a better guest than one of my previous guests and a, and a good friend, Danny Kim. He was a guest previously at SFOX. He's since you know, in a new role. He's an investment director at FBG. And so, Danny, it's great to have you on. Dude, thank you for having me. It's been way too long. Over wait, over a year it's been? Over over a year. Over a year since this last podcast. Yeah. I um, you know, I'm catering to the masses, all four people who wanted me to come back. But for you four people that asked <laughs> me to come back, I'm back for you. <laughs> hey, you know what? Was, was part, part of it is probably like because of this hiatus, I mean, you could probably blame you for this bear market. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. I've, I've come back to yeah. get people so excited <laughs> because crypto really does have so much fundamentals and it's not all smoke and mirrors. And so, Danny, today you and I are going to save the day. This podcast can get at least 5 million views. And I think the Fed, in our honor, is going to start pr printing trillions of dollars and converting it into Bitcoin. I think that's definitely the outcome from this episode. Yeah, if, if there's a bull market, it's going to be because of us, because of this interview today. So, and if we'll there's see. not, by the way, it has nothing to do with us. Like if the market crashes, <laughs> it's three hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You got, all, all we got is upside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's it. That's it. Um, asymmetric upside. So, yeah. um, so, so Danny, you've been on before, but you know, it's been a while. So can you kind of remind all the listeners about your background pre crypto and, and coming into the space? Yeah, sure. So look, um, I started my career right after college, standard standard thing, going into banking, did that suit and tie thing um, for about a decade. And during that time, got hit during the recession. So this was like 07, 08, 09, which was really cool because during that time, like you kind of kind of saw like, look, banking is not going to work. The I saw my I, I saw my managing directors get fired, but then also kind of saw like on the regulation side, what was happening with Dodd-Frank, Basel III and all of that. And from there, I started working. Like, you know, like in parallel, I was thinking about, all right, like, what's my next move? Started working on a startup from there. And that startup was an e-commerce site. And that's kind of, that's really where I came across Bitcoin uh, at first, right? Like this was in 2000, 2010, 2011, read an article, figured out like, all right, like how could I fix uh, ACH chargebacks? And turns out Bitcoin was one method of doing it. Dove deeper into that, completely failed uh, my startup, dive deeper into it. And then basically try to find a, a, any crypto job as like that was available. It turned out one of my buddies, Bobby Cho, um, he was actually at Second Market in the middle of, or he 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 just transitioned over to join Ipit. And it's funny because he, he sent me a, a job description that was coming from Craigslist. And I was like, all right, is this legit or not? Um, but <laughs> went with it anyway. And then, you know, that was that was the end of it. In 2014, ended up joining, joining Ipit. Help them migrate the headquarters from um, Singapore to, to New York to get the trust license, and then ended up going into the, this, this whole process of joining Gemini, building up CryptoPoint Broker, and then I'm here today. 
It's actually, I don't think we hit on this last time, but it's actually kind of funny. Like Chad, who was the founder of ItBit, is a super legit guy. The fact that like, yeah. you know, this hundred, multi-hundred millionaire, billionaire hedge fund manager, you know, launches this crypto thing and makes a job post on Craigslist is pretty funny. It, it, it's, you know, it's funny. It's like, that's the thing. Like first one, like I met him, I'm like, all right, like this is shady. And then like, I go to their office, I meet Chad. He's the most legit dude. And it's funny because one of the questions I asked him, I was like waiting and I saw this library. There's only two books that they mainly cover. It's agriculture, how to farm and everything. And then financial services. And I'm like, Hey, like, you know, what's going on? I said, like, well, look, the world will end. And when the world ends, you're going to need two things. You're going to need to learn how to farm. And you're going to need to have a financial system again. <laughs> he was very early into DeFi then. You know, he was, he was, Dude, he, was he was way early. 2014 DeFi. He was actually yeah. real farming. He, mm -hmm. <laughs> no, no, little known fact, but uh, Ipit used to grow zucchini in Chad's office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about what you did at Ipit. And then, you know, obviously... Last we spoke, you're at S Fox, since went to Maple, yeah. and now you're at FBG. So it's kind of, you know, very high level. Go over those different things. Yeah, okay. It was definitely, I mean, it may not seem like it, but it was a pretty, I guess, planned transition and somewhat unplanned as well. So with Ipit, you know, for me, it was it was low risk. Going from one financial service to a, a new type of train, uh, financial services. Um, so we helped them. I, I helped build out the operations and then go on to the sales side. Um, helping get the trust license and getting that process done. And all of that was pretty much carried over from everything I was doing from the banking world with dealing with Dodd-Frank and Basel III and all that crap. Now, what was really cool was, this is talking about Chad being really early on. Well, Ipip early on was thinking about blockchain, right? They were thinking about teaser settlement and all of that. It's just timing wasn't there. So while they were trying to pivot from the exchange side into focusing on T0 settlement and building up their, their blockchain, I decided, look, I still love crypto. I still want to go into the, the trading side. Got connected to the Winkle Boss Twins and then ended up joining them to help launch Gemini Exchange. And, you know, they just got their Ethereum trust license. They were tr trying to build out their book. And so I came in, you know, helped build out their BD side, the sales side, and then built out their, you know, ultimate exchange. And then during that time, I kind of realized, look, like everyone was focused on, hey, we think that like, the whole thesis between the twins and Chad was, a regulated exchange is is what's going to bring in institutional adoption or more adoption. But then when I was talking to everybody, it was way too early. Like, fuck, like forget regulation. It was just all over the place. It was more that those who weren't regulated, they were very much interested in, in crypto. The problem was, was trying to actually access crypto. Different exchanges at the time, there were about like five or six. You'd have to go to like Serbia or something. And like, there was really no easy way to do it. So my thesis was, look, let's get a crypto prime broker, aggregate all these major exchanges into one single point. Um, and that's kind of, that's basically what led me to SVOX. Like the guys were initially building up, you could say like an E-Trade or a Kayak uh, at the time of crypto. And then I told them like, look, let's build this institutional platform that focuses on single point of access, kind of like a prime broker. So we pivoted to that, built that out. Now, you know, that's when you and I last spoke and, you know, I was head down, I was heads down building it out, but then kind of like in a breather in like 2020 to 2021, I took a step back and I'm like, dude, like, what am I building? Like, what are we building? Like, this isn't really Web3 or this wasn't really crypto. It was just essentially another exchange, but making crypto accessible. And so I was trying to figure out, hey, what is interesting? And DeFi was just going crazy. This was during the middle of DeFi summer. It was going bananas. 
Uh, but I was still trying to figure out like, where do I fit into this? Like what actually works, what's real? Started having a number of conversations. And a part of it, I was thinking about it was, look, when it comes to finance, the, the crux of finance is credit. So I was trying to see which platforms are out there trying to build out something cool. Coincidentally, in the middle of 2021, you know, the, the recruiter at Maple Finance, James, phenomenal guy, by the way, he reached out says, hey, we got this, we got this position. We think you'd be great. Do you want to join us? I spoke with Joe and Sid immediately and we immediately hit it off. Loved what they're doing because they weren't trying to skip anything. They were like, look, like we think that institutional DeFi is there, but we gotta, you know, it's not there yet and we gotta build it. So I came on, joined them. Um, once I joined them, we we basically took it from square one, right? Like they were launching with a $17 million pool. And the idea was, well, is, look, if we're gonna make this institutional. We've got to make it look, look and feel institutional because at the time, DeFi was straight up. You go on Twitter, you go on, you go on Discord. We'll get connected. This was so this forth. was twenty twenty one DeFi. So this was Yam Yam Finance. Yeah, this, this was Yam Finance. And kimchi. <laughs> yeah, and dude, and so if you're talking about institutional DeFi, like no one's going to go into Yam and all that. Like they'll dabble with it, but like, like how the hell do you even like deal with it, right? And so Joe said, permission yams. Position yams. <laughs> so like, I was talking to Joe and said, I'm like, dude, like, look, like, let's take a step back because like 3.0 is cool, but if you really want to get institutions, like we kind of kind of do it, kind of do it like a little step back. So we it's funny, we took a lot of web two stuff in. Like we we added a contact us page. We we, we actually changed our, our website to make it very more, you know, institutional friendly, adding the words and the verbiage and so forth. Those two little things, having a contact us and being able to talk to somebody was a game changer uh, because all these people started coming in. They were like, wow, we could actually talk to somebody. We we'll have to go on Twitter. And then from there, we were like, all right, look, we set up a North store. We want to be the institutional platform. And so we ended up making some partnerships. We started talking to Circle, ended up working with Genesis, Block Tower, and a few others. And that just blew up. And now we're, you know, I think those guys now are about at a billion and a half in, in, in loan originations. Um, so look, I, I spent, I was at Maple for about a year, um, and we grew way faster than I expected, but I realized like, look, I love building. I, I love going from, you know, series A to series, I mean, sorry, pre-seed to series A. But then after that, you know, that's a different skill set way beyond me. And so I've known the FBG guys for, since, since I got into crypto, like Vincent or, or Soji that he's, he's well known as we've known each other for quite some time and, and they reached out. They're like, look, like, you know, we're expanding our venture arm. You could do what you need to do, which is build, and we can just grow this. And so for me, my, my point of view was, well, if I could go into venture arm, not be siloed, and help every single portfolio company that I work with, why the hell not, right? Like, I will go into the BD side, help them with the go-to macro strategy, but then also have skin in the game. And so that's kind of where I am today. And so can you talk to us a little bit about FBG? For anyone who doesn't know, FBG is, it's an OG fund. FBG has been around for a long time. So can you talk a little bit about what FBG is, what makes it unique versus other funds in this space? I mean, you know, for the longest time in crypto, you know, capital was, you know, quasi cheap, right? And there were a million yeah. people that were trying to give you money. So why should somebody take money from FBG? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's 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 a good question. I mean, outside of us being OG, well, now because right? so, you need money, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, look, like like you said, right? Like, so a bit about F FBG. So FBG, we started off. Some people don't even know this. That purely as a, as a mining firm, we started mining back in 2015. Um, it was really by like two individuals, 
And then that naturally, from what they were mining, they were going to OTC trading. And back in the day, dude, this was in 15, 16, if you were flipping five Bitcoins, 25 Bitcoins, 50 Bitcoins, you were OTC trading, right? And that's like $50,000 worth. Um, and we were just going back and forth. But naturally, that started building out. That naturally, as their market making and trading business started growing, it led them into, and you know, it just led them into the venture arm where, you know, back in the day, 16, 17, 18, everything that was crypto was coming out of Asia, China, Korea, and all of that, right? So FBG supported all those major projects, and then we just continued growing. We ended up getting partnering with all the major exchanges. We knew all everyone and so forth, um, and then also grew out our lending book. And so today, you know, we're a multi-asset, well, we're, we're a, a multi-asset management firm focused on blockchain. We have a trading business. We have a mark. Um, we have our venture arm. We have our mining, our Bitcoin mining business. Um, now it's in Kentucky, along with you know we do Filecoin mining with, with Blockchain.com. We have a lending business, so we're pretty much all across. Now you're asking me, hey, like you know why take money from you know FBG? I mean, to be honest, like look, there are a lot of different funds, so many different funds out there, right? Now the big thing here for us is that we're actively involved in getting involved with the, with the projects, helping them grow, you know, trying to figure out how to do the go-to market, give them extensions into Asia. Um, but then outside of that, when you're thinking about, all right, like, I mean, you probably heard stories where people get ripped off from, from market makers on, you know, how do you do, like, you know, what's a market making agreement, how to get a listing and so forth. But well, we know exactly what's fair, what's real, what's not. And that's kind of where we give that guidance, right? We're, we're, we obviously want to take care of our projects. And so that's kind of where we're trying to, you know, get involved with, help these guys out. And that's what we're doing. And so you guys do both equity and token deals, right? Yeah. So, I mean, tokens have always been the most favorable to us and what we preferred, uh, but we've naturally gone and done a variety of different equity deals. So we're pretty much all across now. And in, in the environment that we're in today in crypto, we're obviously digital assets are, or the tokens themselves are depressed. Uh, honestly, private company valuations are also compressed, right? There are secondary yeah. deals, which are going for super cheap. You know, how do you think of about being an investor and deploying capital today? Um, and does it depend on the stage? But how do you think through like equity versus token deals? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny enough, like we've actually been seeing, like especially with all deals coming from the Western side, right? They're all generally starting off with safes to begin with like equities. Um, and then they may add in a, a token warrant or, or whatnot. So for us, I mean, we're still evaluating in, in, in the same way. But, you know, when, it, when, it, when, when we are speaking to a company that is pure equity, well, what is that? What is that long game? Like, what is their exit? If they are, if there is going to be an exit or not, right? So generally, like any project or company that we we talk with or start investing in, I mean, we go through the this, the same protocols, right? Like, we're still looking at understanding who the team is, what value are they bringing in, and again, like if, if, since everything is focused on blockchain, like are they actually doing anything fundamentally different on the blockchain that's adding value, and not just adding blockchain to it or adding a token to it, right? And it's, it's the same way, regardless if it's token or not, that's the way we're viewing it. Um, so, yeah. And so are you guys doing any secondary uh, share purchasing? So obviously, you know, token values are depressed, but what else is depressed is, you know, there are a lot of companies that went out and raised at four or $5 billion valuations. Those companies are now trading at a billion, right? Or companies that raised at 500 and are now trading at 150, right? Because, yeah. you know, Private markets follow public markets, right? So in public market, you know, SaaS valuations go from 15x to 5x forward revenue. Same thing is going to happen, you know, you know, at, at, at a lower pace, but with with private deals. And mm -hmm. so, are you guys thinking about or buying any secondary secondary deals? 
And how do you think, uh, you know, multiple and valuations will change? Is this like a temporary compression or do you think this lasts for a long time? Yeah, I mean, 100%. We're, we've been looking at secondaries and we're still active in secondaries just because it's, look at these valuations where there have been, so look, the reality was is, well, the reality is, is that, you know, in our, in our last run, a lot, a lot of projects were inflated. Um, they got into secondary, were super inflated as well. Um, even valuations. Now, some of these fantastic projects that came out listed uh, and so forth, it, it's a great, it's a great buying opportunity, right? So we're still doing the same due diligence as we normally would and just looking at it very fairly, right? Like it, regardless if you are a, a public company that's been listed or a, a private company, we're, we're taking it in, in the same fashion um, because if there is an opportunity where we can see it and, you know, get involved and that's what we're doing. And so going into like, you know, the valuations, like it does kind of bleed into, well, now we're talking to, to private companies that are raising, right? And if they're doing, if, there's, if they're a project that's very similar to what's already listed in, in the secondary, well, you're going to naturally use that as comparison. And that kind of hurts them. Like, I mean, it may it may work in their favor. It may not, given where prices have been. It hasn't, right? But, you know, that's that's fine because, you know, even at secondary valuations, like, you know, you're not finding amazing deals that are, you know, super cheap. I mean, like what we see on the on the primary, it's still, you know, you could still see seed rounds around like 15 to 20. Maybe they'll go, some will go to 40, depending if they actually have a revenue, like, you know, if they are generating revenue or not. Um, you're, you're talking so yeah, about like I mean, seed rounds raising at at 20 million on average right now, like 15 to 20 million valuations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was seeing and I'm sure you well, saw a lot that, more of these. I mean, there were seed rounds going for 80 to 100, uh, you know, pre-revenue, which was nuts. Dude. So there are still some that are going for like, you know, 50. Like are 50 they getting funded though? Higher. And it, so, I, so that's the thing, right? So we're talking about like, Hey, are they up for a rooter raking or not? Well, like it, it's, there's two parts to it, right? So if you went, if you did an equity round, well, it's hard to do something even lower, right? So they're trying to either bridge it or they're going to, they're trying to push for that higher valuation. So you can't kind of blame them for it. it it's hard for even for investors to, to take, right? Um, for the token rounds, I mean, you see them having more flexible and then pushing back and pulling back their, their valuations. And look, I, I think some of it is, is like, you can't just blame them. It's even naturally, even our peers, people, there's a lot of dry powder within the space that needs to be deployed. And so people are still feeding some of that cash into those valuations. And so it's not like an immediate drop of like you saw initially we were going at 100 to 20. It's it's a, it's a kind of rising. It's like been, it's been actually a lot slower, but people are starting to, to notice. And so, you know, you've been mentioning you guys are mainly focused on token deals. So what sectors of the crypto market are you most excited about? And how has that changed over over time? Um, you know, obviously we had DeFi summer when you kind of switched and, and joined Maple, right? We've had, mm -hmm. you know, there there there, you know, crypto kind of moves in waves, right? We've had, you know, the metaverse was really hot, and it turns out, well, there's not that many people that are actually on Decentraland right now, and Sandbox and all these different yeah. things, right? So, you know, like over time, we start to see all these, you know, these sectors rise and fall. I think GameFi is the hottest new sector was. Maybe it's not anymore. Maybe it was very, you know, yesterday. But like, wh what yeah. are you excited about? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, so when you ask me, like, we you know what's changed. I mean, I don't think much has changed. It's kind of just expanded. So I, I still kind of view everything in the same way I originally thought about. But it's there were things I didn't expect, and now I, I've, I've expanded that out to to include that, right? But like, what I'm excited about. So like, what we're thinking about today, and this is just to preface this, like, 
what we do today is going to be completely different from tomorrow. And like, that's kind of what we've seen from everything that we've been changing. And you're kind of seeing this in this, like this growth in innovation and technology, like we're having faster, like, you know, lower latency, you know, more bandwidth, everything's moving a lot faster. And that's moving us into like a, 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 a interactive like network or, or mesh. Right. And people are becoming like, just look at people all around you. Like everyone's becoming more independent. They want they, they, people believe in more self-sovereignty. They, there's less trust in central parties and all of that. Right. And with that, this kind of still like, I'm still excited about you know, this. And the reason why I'm all saying this is because I'm still very excited about, you know, open finance or, or DeFi. It's just changed slightly. Like before DeFi was the DeFi summer, it was trying to make a quick buck, but that summer validated the idea that, Hey, people want to manage their own money. People want to figure out how to make their own money. They don't want to trust a third party, um, all of that. Right. And now it's just transformed because open finance, initially people thought it's going to be just going to disrupt banks. Well, Open finance now is going to become very, in very different shapes and forms. Like you have, game, like point to point, GameFi. That's another form of finance. Create like for creatives, NFTs have blown up, and that's been giving them a, a, a sense of finance as well. Unbanked with gaming, like you know, all that is is going down. And then from there, you're going from like geographical regions to tools and so forth. So everything that's kind of generally building up towards that open finance is is super exciting. And then, and then there's like other parts, right? Like, like social finance is really cool. Zero knowledge is really cool. But at the end of the day, like it's this open finance of how things are changing. That's what's really cool about what's happening right now. And so one question that we've asked all of our guests, including you previously, is about mm-hmm. fundamentals and how you define fundamentals for digital assets. So, you know, obviously we have your prior answer and I think it'd be fun. I don't think, I don't know if you listened to it, but to compare what you had said, you know, then to what you would say now, because I'm sure it'd be slightly different, but you know, how do you think about fundamentals for tokens and, and does it depend on the token, right? You just talked about a bunch of different sectors of the market, right? Like do different sectors have different fundamentals or are they all the same? Yeah, dude. So I, I actually really wonder, I didn't, so I didn't listen to what I said last time. Kind of curious what, what that's going to be, but like, dude, it, it's been, it's been a couple of years and I think it's still very hard to figure out what the fundamentals are to project, you know, what, how to evaluate, right? I mean, like there, there are basics, right? Like, look, at the end of the day, you'll always continue to figure out, all right, the, where's, where's the growth coming from? Like, is, does this actually need blockchain or the, like, is the team solid and so forth? Um, how is the go-to market going to be? But like, you know, people are doing, you know, financial evaluations, PEs and so forth, but that's not somewhat applicable to, to a lot of these projects. And like, you know, I, I think the biggest thing, frankly, is, is the community, community execution, right? So like, if the project's already been launched, well, look at look at look at the git like look at the GitHub, right? Like how how much has been developed? How much like you know how many developments have been happening? How is the community growing? Is it actually natural? Is it just short term? And then more importantly, like you know where does blockchain actually fit in? So every time there's a bull run, there's always a lot of big projects that come in. That's a it's a quick hit and, and you know a quick hit and bounce. But there are a lot of projects that continue doing well where they're actually fundamentally changing blockchain or training the ecosystem. So that's kind of where I'm viewing things and how, like how I'm evaluating everything. So in a similar vein, where have you seen digital assets that have actual real world use cases? Does crypto have any value beyond speculation or are we just having a lot of fun trading these things? Yeah. I mean, mean, we're definitely having a lot of fun trading these things, right? (laughs) 
I mean, look, I would say crypto in itself, it's, you know, I think we're still figuring out, but blockchain and actually being able to use the phones is like stable coins. Stable coins on blockchain actually has had a use case. The coolest thing when I first joined Maple was how I was getting paid. They were streaming my payment on, on chain called, uh, what's it called? Uh, Sadler app. And literally every second, I'd be getting a dollar or something, right? And I can withdraw that anytime. So this actually completely disrupts, you know, uh, Western Union or any of those, you know, immediate pay- payment advances uh, because I could get paid and, and, and use it whenever I need to. And that also applies for the whole giga economy. Now, all of that is super cool. And I think like that use case is fundamentally always going to continue working because you're, we're, we're seeing that and, you know, different projects will continue adding it and so forth. Outside of that, I mean, like, look, like the what is actually working on actually is you know the the data like the data side of storage side, right? So if you're looking at Arweave and everything else, well, and that's kind of going back into the blockchain side of things, and that in itself is really cool, where everything decentralization of being able to store information and use other like GPUs and so forth has been growing, and the use case has been you know working. So all that does is, use case equal price. And will it equal price in the future? I mean, maybe in the future. I mean, right, right, right now, it's I, I, the way I see it is it's like use case creates demand, but it's it's really like the, the hype that drives in the price, right? I, I think I think it's hard to figure out what the price of any token is going to be, um, but you can project like you know how big or how you know how big that community can grow. And so, however you want to evaluate that correlation between growth and, and, and price, sure. But I, it's 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 hard to figure. Out. I think it's hard to figure out what price is. So, I mean, I've I've, I've always firmly like like I've always hate analysts that call out prices, especially even on the equity side as well. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, it's one question that we've never asked a guest, and I will never ask a guest is, what is your price prediction? Because like. Like I could, I could throw a dart at a wall and come up with a price prediction, and it's probably going to be better than my price prediction if I just came up with one of on my own. Yeah, look, it's it's all it's <laughs> it's, it's it's all bogus, dude. <laughs> like when you call when you call um, out the pricing. I, I'm with I'm with you 100. percent I'm with you 100. I think I think though that it's with certain things, it's definitely clear to say like. And, and this is my opinion. I'm curious if you, if, if you have the same opinion, but like with Bitcoin, for example, right? Right now, Bitcoin's at $23,000, $24,000. I wish we recorded this a week ago when I was at 18 because my point would be even better. But like, you know, do you believe that one day Bitcoin will be worth more than its all time high, given everything that's happened in the market? And the answer that I think almost everyone in this space would give you, and a lot of people not in this space, is yes. And so at $24,000, you're basically saying that's a guaranteed 3x from current prices. Go find me another asset somewhere else in the world that probably has that, right? It's just, it's it's speaking to earlier, we spoke spoke about, you know, we joked about asymmetric upside in our podcast leading the bull market. But like, you know, I think at least from my perspective, you can start to think about crypto in that way where it's like, do you think this asset will accrue value that makes it worth X percentage of Y. I, I, I don't know. I'm curious as to your take on that. No, look, I, I, I agree with you, right? Like, I mean, look, we can use, we can, we can base off on, on historicals and then look at what the demand is or, or supply and demand, right? Like, could I say, and I, would I agree that will Bitcoin achieve some type of all time high that surpasses our previous one? 100%, right? Like, 
I think we've, we've seen the demanding growth from there and what people want to get involved. I just can't predict when that will happen. Right. No. Like, and I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Right? It's like I, in the next five years or 10 years, I think it's going to happen. Is there anything else where I would wave my finger and think that I could definitively say that it will three X like, I don't know, maybe ETH, yeah. <laughs> but like, <Yeah. laughs> you know, um, but, but, you know, I, I think, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept, but I'm curious, you know, one of the things that's driving that demand and, and you obviously come from a, a traditional capital markets background, you know, you worked at one of the early prime brokers in crypto, the mm-hmm. early exchanges that were focused on institutions, you know, how do you think the macro landscape impacts how institutions are thinking about crypto? Because the institutions are coming and they have been coming, but are they going to say, hold up, wait, we're now in this really high interest rate environment and yields on, in DeFi are worse than yields on treasury bonds. Is that going to cause any hesitation? Yeah. I mean, look, like, so I think there's always been like, like well, we've been seeing way more, a lot more correlation between, you know, the, the traditional orders or the equity markets across with how it's been fitting in with, um, with, with crypto in terms of the pricing itself, following the queues and so forth. And so that, that'll continue growing. And I think like, I think it was Dan that said it well, like in Dan Matuszewski, when, you know, we, when he was talking about like, you know, where prices are, like, you know, what the markets look like, well, crypto has, has definitely matured a lot more. And as maturity does happen, it does end up following macroeconomics, right? And that's just, that's just a natural progression development within it. Before, people would say, hey, crypto is, is a perfect hedge because there's absolutely no correlation. And sure, it wasn't because it, it was very, very native. Now, if that's changed, institutional demand and, you know, where that's coming. So this is an interesting thing, right? Because, you know, I, I kind of want to say like, who cares about institutions? Because I think there's new, I, I want to redefine what institutions are because what crypto has done is developed a whole a whole branch of new types of institutions. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that point. So institutions like the banks, the BNPs and so forth, it's quite interesting, right? Because look, we all know that they're very slow. They get into things and they're, they're doing this because uh, uh, of what client demands are and that naturally ends up creating more access. So it's, it's, it's a great thing for the market where, Going back to the point of if you create more accessibility, it helps it, help, it helps our ecosystem grow because if people can easily store it, buy it, and so forth, and feel safe about it, then it just there's always going to be that growing demand for it. But you know what I, I think what's been more I think what gets overlooked more often is actually those institutions actually haven't had a big impact in my opinion into how our ecosystem has grown and will continue to grow. It's actually these new institutions that have been doing this. And what I define as new institutions, it's literally all these, you know, crypto native companies like, dude, think about Multicoin, which started off as 17 million. Now they're multi-billion, right? All these hedge funds that came in in the beginning that launched, they're multi-billion dollar firms and they've made big change. I consider them an institution. Even like individuals now who started off like, dude, like B2C2, Max, it was him, Flavio, just two dudes starting off they became a multi-huge shopping in the market-making business. They were the institution as well. Those guys have actually been hugely impactful into this ecosystem of crypto. So like, I, I think these, as we're seeing more of these type of companies growing and, and pushing because they're the ones willing to take the risk, that's kind of the big change that, we, like, that helps push this. But in terms of the long-term growth of the market, I mean, I just looked now, right now, the overall market cap of crypto is $1.04 trillion. The market cap of Apple stock is two point four eight trillion. So we're 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 
about, you know, 30 or 40 percent of Apple stock, the entire yeah. market cap of every asset in crypto, including Bitcoin, which is the majority or 40 percent or whatever it is of the crypto market cap. Right. And so do you think these institutions need to come in to push this forward more? I mean, do you think I mean, from your background, I mean, yeah. do you think like obviously the re- Institutions is a weird ass word that we use mm. in crypto because it's so bastardized. Like <laughs> it, it's so bastard. It's um, like we say we refer, and I do it too. Everyone does it just because that's yeah. what people use in crypto. But like we refer to hedge funds, institutions, but in reality, you know, institutions are used to you know describe pensions and endowments and these large institutions, right? But do we think for this asset class to move forward, it's going to be? it's going to always be driven by these crypto quote unquote institutions, or do we think there's going to be a lot of these large traditional institutions that continue to, to drive it forward? I mean, we're, we're seeing slow examples of that, but for example, you know, golden tree has been very vocal. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they took Avi over from block tower, yeah. you know, to their team. They're like the first crypto company that's managed to attract somebody from outside of crypto uh, or from inside. I mean, they're sorry, the first not, non-crypto company that's yeah. gone the other way around, but like, how do you think about that evolving over time? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I actually think it's not so much the institutions that's going to drive it because institutions won't drive it unless there's actually clear regulation and clarification. Like, what's holding back more adoption is actually like clarity on what we can do, what we can't do, how to do it. Right? I mean, the big thing here is, is like, look, the ETF got rejected again, and for God knows what reason, like. That is like, and I wouldn't, I don't consider the ETF institution, it's a, it's a product and it's it's related to that regulatory body that's blocking it, right? Until that actually gets cleared up, that's what's holding it. That's what's holding everything back because the reality is, dude, like every single crypto And do you project, think it's just regulation in the US? Do you think that's the biggest driver? Or do you think it's global? I think, I, I think it's global, right? I mean, like every region has its own thing. I mean, the US obviously has been always at the forefront, um, trying, to, trying to take in and it's been very confusing, but- We've seen other companies, you know, I was not other companies, but other countries try to take the step forward. And, you know, this is where you've seen a migration of, of, of crypto companies like Singapore, for instance. They were trying to be very forward with it. And you saw a huge migration of all those companies go over there because they were being a little bit more clear on how to do things, right? And then this is why you have sovereign wealth funds actively being involved and getting involved with crypto because they know what they can do, can't do, how crypto companies should be evaluated and so forth. So globally, Look, if every country is doing something in the right way, that's what's going to open it up. And it's kind of like, look, if, if one country does something and, and it could do you think the well, regulatory clarity has to always be positive or do you think clarity in and of itself is enough? Because I fear differing viewpoints on that. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> so like I could bite you in the ass, right? Because, yeah, like negative it has, like, it has to be a reasonable understanding. It has to be a reasonable regulation, meaning like people have to understand what they're regulating and, and, and you know, be able to explain. Like, dude, well, like the last time we the, the guys spoke about regulation, no one really even knew what crypto was, and they were like just talking about nonsense, right? And how can you actually provide a clear regulation? So this is kind of where I think like like self like SRO self regulated organization is hugely impactful with with within our industry because. Like you, if you have industry veterans, people who are leading this front, and they care about this this, this ecosystem growing, they can self-regulate it and provide the right views. Now, if our governments would take that, you know, that would be helpful. So, I, I think to answer your question, like some regulation is better than nothing. Um, would I take negative regulation over 
Uh, no regulation. Probably, probably not. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's a spectrum. I think it's got to be a spectrum, right? Because like, if the SEC says all these things are securities, like that's not that's not great. But if the SEC comes out with some licensing requirements for exchanges, that's I would describe that as some people would view it as negative regulation, but it's probably better than no regulation because at least they're, in my perspective, they're they're making a making some law and people have something to follow and they're not just guessing. Yeah, I mean, look, as long as these, as long as the SEC sticks with it, right? If, they, if the SEC states, hey, this is what you got to do, you got to get the like get an ATS or a broker dealer. This is how you can become a, a an exchange, and they stick with that. That's completely fine because then at least everyone knows. Hey, let me hire lawyers. Let me figure out what I got to do and do that. Like, I think last time in the last like two years, everyone thought it was like two or three years ago where everyone was like, all right, SEC kind of gave some clear like guidance on like, hey, you got to be a broker dealer. So everyone ended up getting a broker dealer. They're like, ah, actually. I wonder gotta- if Jay was still in <laughs> office if we would have finally had some some clarity. But you know what the, the, the bet, you know, a lot of people have been, you know, you know, a lot of people have gotten laid off recently in this space and there have been changes and things like that. But the best job ever in crypto is to be a lawyer because with this zero <laughs> regulatory, un, like regulatory certainty, every everyone is dying to pay lawyers through the ass because they have no idea what to do. Dude, if, you're, if you're asking me, like if, if you want to say, if we were talking about like who's been making the most money in crypto, it's not the, it's not the crypto projects. Oh, it's, it's the, the lawyers. Law- it's the lawyers. It's the lawyers. And it's down. Crushing it. Crushing it. <laughs> oh crushing my God. It. Like that is just a straight, oh God. I Don't be a, a founder, be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> Um, so, so, you know, in that TradFi versus crypto vein, your, your former employer, BNP, uh, just announced that they are rolling out crypto custody support. I didn't actually read the article, so I'm going to caveat that, but I think it may have been around, uh, security tokens and not crypto. I could be wrong. I don't know if you looked into it, but you know, what do you think of that? And if you haven't, who do you think's in this, you know, who do you think wins or is there a battle between crypto and TradFi? Like, you know, and and by that I mean like if Goldman rolls out crypto prime brokerage, does that eat the lunch of all of the crypto brokers, right? And so how do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot, a lot of questions. Um, well, so for for the BMP stuff, like I, I think they I forget which um, which uh, custody solution they're going to be using, but I think it's the one out of uh, Swiss. Fireblocks. Uh, I think it's Fireblocks. Those Fireblocks. I think so. Okay. I, I was sure if that was the one with they, they did the one with Nomura and so forth. But like, dude, like... Read the article as we're going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, them hosting, like... So it's interesting. So like, I was talking to... I think I was talking to Nomura. Oh, it's Mataco and Fireblocks. Mataco, yeah. That's who Both it is. of them, yeah. Well, like, security tokens, like... So we spoke with a number of the banks, even while I was at, at Maple, right? Understanding like, hey, what can they hold and so forth funny thing is it's like they can't hold any they can't hold any type of cryptocurrency on their balance sheet nomura and all those guys were like look like we can't hold like we can hold a security token a, a version of a, a digital a digital asset a digital version of a security but we can't hold any cryptocurrency we can't hold stable coins and all that and we can't do any of that so i'm like okay so to me this kind of makes sense because they already knew they can't hold any type of crypto um it's just going to be stable it's just going to be security tokens does that bring in any value? I mean, that's still very far to go. Uh, very far to go. Now, 
talking about if hey, if Goldman gets into you know the prime brokerage business and so forth, will that eat other people's lunch? Probably not, right? It just expands that market because there are look gold, Goldman's P business, PB's business, um, extending credit capital and so forth. It just expands the variety, like it opens up the door for. Yeah, and Goldman was just obviously Goldman's got the biggest balance sheet, right? Yeah. And if you're like, you know, if you're going to trust, you know, like. You know, obviously, you know this better than anybody, but one of the biggest challenges of the crypto prime brokers is no one's got a balance sheet. And so you can't actually get extended credit on all the exchanges. So you need to actually have funds deployed in all the exchanges. Right. So, you know, but but I think the, the question is just more broadly, like as these different, you know, thinking about institutional infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Um, and thinking about whether that's custody, trading, you know, could be data, could be anything else. Like, do you think the traditional companies that are leaders and clear leaders in the, that space become the dominant players in the crypto market? Do you think it's a mixed bag? Why do you think one wins versus the other? Yeah, look, I, look, I think I think it should be mixed, right? Like, I don't think the traditional banks will win and, and eat, you know, our lunch. Um, you know what I think more interesting is probably going to be where you have Goldman, like clients of Goldman that may actually end up trying out once once they get their feet wet with Goldman and the digital currency side, start actually trying out different solutions that are more crypto native, right? Because frankly, being it, crypto native companies are more transparent, it's a little bit cheaper and so forth, right? I think and like from a user perspective from all the crypto folks, you know, it's a different user experience. Like from what we've gone and what we see and what we know, like how we interact with a lot of our like our prime brokers and different exchanges, it's very different from the what like requirements and standards that Goldman may have. And so you're probably like, yeah, in crypto you can get unsecured loans. It's a great idea. You, you could get unsecured loans over uns- and collateralizing those loans with unsecured more unsecured loans. <laughs> that's never gonna. I mean, I haven't recorded a podcast in a year, so I have to imagine that that that's still going great, dude. It's. So let me let's let's talk about that for a second, right? Like, you know, if you want to talk about like, hey, like what needs to get fixed in, in crypto, or like what's happening, like that in itself, because, dude, like the problem is like the market is still small, but like your 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 credit is based off of, you know, how many Twitter followers you have. You know, you you could write that shit on a on a piece of paper and say, hey, this is this is what my balance sheet looks like. This is what my nav is. Like that's the scary part. That's the thing that actually. We need to get fixed if we, if we want to continue extending this because, I mean, damn! You see, you see all these major companies who who let, who lent out unsecurely, and look, I, I I get it, but like, there's only so much due diligence that could be done. That's kind of, that's kind of the scary part. Yeah, I mean, speaking of which, if any lenders are listening right now, my nav is five billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so the time to borrow lunch. So. It, in light of everything that has happened in the last few months, uh, what do you think the biggest risks to the cryptocurrency space are today, and how do you imagine them evolving over time? Yeah, it's exactly what I just said. Like the the, the credit worthiness, right? Like being able to evaluate fairly and more transparently on, hey, what the exposure actually looks like. Now, the big thing there is, is like, it, it, what what actually surprised me the most after everything came about is that how little a lot of the firms, especially the lending firms, were actually not talking to each other. Like if I would have expected Celsius, somebody from their team talking with Genesis, because you're ultimately kind of seeing, hey, you know, and being from Maple, yeah, we always ask, all right, who are you borrowing from? How much that borrowing is and so forth, right? And we'd reach out to our counterparts saying, hey, is credit good and so forth? So I, 
that communication, it, like the, the, the risk of that communication not actually happening and not being able to truly verify what a what counterparty act, exposure actually is, that's like that's the that's the biggest issue because you're not gonna, we're not going to have continued growth unless we have that and like unless you can actually extend out more capital and until there's actually some type of trust, uh, you know, that's going to deter a lot of things. What other are there? Is there anything else that you think is a big risk? Is there anything else outside of that? I mean, well, regulatory you hit on obviously earlier, alluded yeah. to at least. I mean, I mean, to me, I mean, those are the two main things that that pop into mind. Well, what, 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 what do you think? No, I, I think those are totally fair. I was just wondering if you had anything like revolutionary to tell us. I mean, I think lack of adoption is probably another one. Bad user experience. I think there's lots of good answers, you know, to that question. I think we got a lot of thing to work things to work on in the crypto space. But the great yeah, thing is like, we have a we have amazing talent like Danny to help fund <laughs> the next generation of products to get us there. I mean, like, but the, like those aren't risks, right? Like, people are starting to to actually build that out, right? Like, yeah, like, look, I think I think that's one of the greatest things that we have in crypto. Our biggest asset isn't necessarily the tech and everything yet, but it's the talent pool, right? Yeah. And when you're going to bet on somebody, and 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 I think you'd say this as, as a VC, and you you mentioned looking into who the team is and stuff like that, you bet on talent and the amount of you know people that left. I mean, you were one of the first to do it back in 2014. But the amount of people that left their jobs, you know, their cushy jobs at Goldman or at Google or at Apple or here or there, anywhere else to come and be a builder in crypto, right? That gives you, I mean, it's, it's really exciting, a really big thing to be excited about for the future. Yeah. And actually, so that's actually the biggest risk, right? Like people getting burned so much where our talents actually decide to leave the space. Um, because it's, once you leave, it's hard, it's hard to grab them back, right? And I mean, I, th- I think fortunately, the you know, even with all this downturn, we still have a lot of the good talent hasn't left. They're just actually trying to rethink what they can do and rebuild it. But at to the point where if people start getting burned down and people start leaving, um, that's when it kind of gets scary. I mean, you could say in the beginning, like a lot of the OGs, you know, have been actively less involved, or even like the OG, like you know, engineers and so forth, and that was kind of scary because you didn't have that much, you know, development, but. We kind of got this whole new new wave of young, amazing talent that is like yeah. Super I think hungry. I think with all the layoffs in the space, obviously there's a piece of that which go back, you know, to to their prior jobs. Especially you know the people who came into crypto and either got a job offer that was rescinded or were here for three or yeah. four months. They're like, oh, maybe this risk isn't for me necessarily. But I do think there's also like a group in there that go on and build the next generation of really cool shit. Right. You know, people that got laid off that are like, you know what? I've been working for the last 15 years of my life. It's time that I buckle down and start building. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's basically like, I mean, every bear market's a filtering system based similar to projects where every bear market, you get all the shitty projects that get wiped out and then all the strong ones remain and continue to grow with the talent wise as well. The ones that actually want to build it and completely believe in it. The ones that were just kind of in it for like the fun ride end up leaving, but the ones that want to build, they just, pack up their stuff and then rethink about how can they rebuild this and then do this better. And that's like, I think that's kind of the benefit. It's just like at a certain point, how many bears can people take? And that's what, that's, that's the scary part. Yeah. I mean, you're on what? Four. Yeah. (laughs) It's fun. I mean, look, it's my fourth one or third or fourth one, but it's, it's, it's scary, but it's funny. Like, uh, I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm so numb to it now. 
I mean, at this point, like, you know, I've, I've been in this space a lot less than you. I've been in this space for about five years or so. But, you know, you just go back to the closet and pull out the ramen that was sitting there from before. You go back to doing what you were doing before and you start building, you, you go head down. And, you know, when, when you when you emerge again, you know, the people that were building and were quiet and were doing their own thing are going to be successful. And I'm, you know, I, I bet there are, a, you know, a few listeners out there that are in that kind of position of thinking about, you know, kind of where they want to go, you know, do they want to stay in crypto or not? And I think, you know, there's a lot to be excited about. So that that goes into my next question, which is what are you excited about? What should people be excited about in this space? Yeah, so I think what's super exciting, there, there's just two parts. I said this before was like zero knowledge and social five. I, I think social and, and digital identity. So I think we've been trying to, we've been slowly getting there. Um, and this kind of goes back into the credit space as well. But like, you know, having a self-credit, having a self-sovereignty and knowing like, you know, like, you know, where my, where my identity is being shared with or who, who actually has control with it, um, what I do and so forth. That's a really attractive sector. And that kind of just feeds into the social five things a lot because where all of our technology is going and, you know, how we're building out web three, everyone's living in, in this self-sovereign world. Um, and it's really intermeshed. Well, like being able to control your own identity and being able to transfer that, that's a really cool sector where, you know, I, I just came across a project that's been focusing on that. And I, I we've been trying to do this for quite some time. Um, and it's just never executed well. So like maybe I know, a lot of the success is timing. So I feel like right now with everything that's happened, what we have today, how many people are actually using crypto and like using, using DeFi, like it's it's one area that could, you know, really kick it off and be something that's quite interesting. So my final question for you, and you've been in this space for long enough, so you better have a good answer is what is your biggest bag right now that if a fat candle hit, you would just unload it and you would <laughs> you would love to have that exit liquidity? Dude, it's it's, a, it's, the, it's the most obvious answer because I have a so I got I, I got involved with with uh, Terra's last round. So I'm holding a, I'm holding about like a, a quarter million uh, of Terra and that's locked up and I still have some UST that I didn't realize. So I got like like six figures in that. If that hits any type of any, that hits anything, I'm selling that out immediately. I'm stuck in that right now. <laughs> Everything any, else, look. Anything more obscure? Like, True. do you have any feather coin or pure coin or any like random stuff still in a wallet somewhere? Yo, you, so, dude, you know what? I wish. So I still have my crypto kitties. That never. That was old school and like, dude, like that was, that was like one of the first NFTs, but like. Dude, CryptoPunks hit off everything else, but I don't know what happened to uh, CryptoKitties. I want that to, to, to hit off, and then, I'll, I'll, and then I'm selling that. Um, and then there was this um, – what, what was the other one? Um, it, it was like uh, – I, I don't want to say it. Forget it. <laughs> I want to we, – we, we need to hear it now. Huh? We yeah, need it, to hear it now. It, it, was, it was one of those porn – it was like one of those porn coins. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, was it SpankChain? Yeah, yeah, SpankChain. <laughs> let's leave it on spank chain guys danny been it's been a blast it's been a blast I, I now i know why you moved to las vegas spank chain lost it all makes sense it all it makes all, sense it so, all, it's all full circle full circle so you know, it's my last question where can the listeners find you and hear the wisdom of danny kim shout out your socials in different places people can find you and, and fbg as well yeah, yeah. Uh, so social, Twitter, obviously. Uh, handle is Hello Danny Kim for FBG. It's FBG Capital. Um, and then LinkedIn, Daniel Kim on LinkedIn, FBG Capital on LinkedIn. 
really straightforward. And we'll, we'll drop those in, in the description. So thanks again, Danny. It's been a blast and we'll have to make you our first th- third time repeat guest as well in the future. Can't wait, man. 